May that song prayer be all of ours, that unreserved commitment uh, to the Lord, uh, taking all of us, possession of us. If you had turned in your copy of the scripture, Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. May I say to you that Matthew, when he wrote these words, was not writing them with Christmas in view. <laughs> Just let you know that. And I'll explain exactly what he was doing a little shortly here. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Let me read these uh, infallible inspired words uh, in your hearings. This moment. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, as she refused to be comforted, because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Father in heaven, take these words of yours, illumine them to our minds and hearts, May we see your glory and the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in this passage. Thank you for the privilege to look at these words, to study them, and have them applied to our understanding, that we may glorify you more. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. I'm using the subject for these verses, Prophecy Fulfilled. There are things in this world that do not matter to us personally, because they do not affect our lives, and they certainly have no eternal effect on our welfare. But there is one thing that matters supremely. It is profoundly and eternally relevant to us. In fact, it is to all men. That one thing is this. Is Jesus of Nazareth the Messiah? Is he the Savior? We need to know that he is the one who will save his people from their sins, as Matthew asserts in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. The Apostle Matthew, in answering the questions I just posed a moment ago, answers in the affirmative. 
In fact, he provides uh, the affirmative answers because he wrote his gospel to demonstrate that, yes, the Jesus of history, the Jesus of Nazareth, is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Savior of sinners. He is the King of the Jews. How does he do so? How does Matthew affirm his uh, statement or these truths um, that I'm just presenting? Matthew provides evidence showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. He is the one about whom the Old Testament prophets said would come. The Jesus that we know, the Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Jesus that we worship and serve, and that name which is above every name, indeed is the Jesus about whom the Old Testament prophets spoke about over millennia. In fact, in chapter 2, This very chapter in verse 6, we saw last time uh, that the apostle quotes Micah 5.2. You see it there, you recall it. Micah foretold 700 years in advance that Jesus would be born. and That he would be born in Bethlehem. And indeed, he was born in Bethlehem. And as the Magi discovered, based on the prediction of Scripture. Now, in the passage before us, the one I just read in your hearing a moment ago, uh, the one we're examining, three additional prophecies are provided by Matthew as further proof that our Lord Jesus indeed is the King of Kings. He is the divine Messiah, and he is the one who alone can save sinners' souls. The first prophecy in our passage is about the protection given Jesus. Therefore, I label uh, the first heading for verses 13 through 15, providentially protected. Providentially protected. We see the providential hand of God at work in the affairs of men generally, and we see the providential hand of God at work in particular in the life of Jesus as a child. Providence, the providence of God is that he preserves creation and that he directs creation to its intended ends. History and life do not just progress without purpose and aim. In fact, God in his providential ordering and arrangement of events, he is directing everything to the ends that he determined in eternity past. In fact, he, he did that in the very life of the Lord Jesus Christ as a child. He was here on this planet. He was in the protection, uh, the care of Joseph and Mary, but he wasn't left alone in their hands alone. The events that we see here, the fulfillment of divine prophecy relative to Christ Jesus are the effects of the providential direction of Almighty God. In protecting his life, he is orchestrating everything. Now, the narrative here in Matthew continues after the departure of the Magi. Remember, they had received the divine command not to go back to Herod the Great, but they need to go home, and they did. They obeyed God. But the Christ child's life was in imminent danger. His life was threatened. Joseph, you'll see in the text, is told um, in verse 13, he is to get up and take the child, verse 13, his mother, and flee to Egypt. Let me just mention a word about that word, flee. Flee, fuego, is the word in the um, original text. Fuego 
is translated flee here, of course, by our English word. And our English term, fugitive, uh, is derived from fuego. To flee. Fugitives on the run. You're running from something or someone. God in a dream through the angel of the Lord warned him, get up and flee to Egypt. Joseph is to take the child along with Mary, his wife, and go get away from Bethlehem and go to Egypt. Now, you need, you need to understand something. God's providential uh, ordering, let me just expand our comprehension of how he does this. God works in human f- affairs. He uses ordinary means. He, he doesn't employ a miracle here. He could have if he had chosen to, but no. He uses ordinary means because God controls everything. And he told Joseph, now, this is what I want you to do. Get up. Just obey me. And I want you to go to Egypt. Take the child there. So that's what they do. Now, you think about this. This, this is, has to be, I can't imagine what it's like to be awakened by the angel of the Lord in the middle of the night and told, you got to get up and get out of town. This is inconvenient. It's the middle of the night. It's what verse 14, the bottom of the verse tells us. It's still night. He's going to take an unplanned trip to a foreign country for miles away. This one wouldn't be an easy journey. I suppose, the text doesn't say, but I suppose they had some kind of uh, animal. Their mount perhaps was a donkey. And on their way they, they went. It's not like us. He, he couldn't call up Uber or Lyft or get his own vehicle. This is difficult. But God said, do this. Now, we need to understand something about God, how he works in affairs of life. Remember, the Magi had come, found the house as they were guided by the star and found from Scripture where Jesus was to be born. And so what did they do? They provided gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It appears, therefore, that for this trip, God had provided for Joseph and Mary's expenses. They had gold. (laughs) So they could live, they could buy food, whatever is necessary, sustain life. Frankincense and myrrh. Another thing we need to understand here in this passage is the urgency of the matter should not be understood as a narrow escape. Don't think God said, oh, oh, we got to do something. Why don't y'all go to Egypt? Get out of that. No, no, no. It wasn't like that at all. God, remember, he uses or- was ordering the affairs of the Holy Family. He was directing um, the course of events relative to Herod and the Magi. God was in charge of all of this step by step. He has an end to accomplish. A prophecy that's going to be fulfilled because he had spoken it. Now, another thing we need to keep in mind here as we contemplate what's taking place in this narrative is this. Herod did not know that he was unwittingly, unwittingly playing a role in fulfilling prophecy. He had no idea. He didn't know the Lord had spoken this. The prophecy that's found in the last verse of this passage, verse 15. 
God was using him. <laughs> God was overruling. He's in charge. Herod's attempt to destroy Jesus was destined to fail because God's plan of salvation could not fail. Do understand that. Here's the clear promise. This is what's going to happen in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Not perhaps he will. Not if things work out the way I intend. No, he will do it. And there's no little tin pot, tin pot dictator named Herod sitting on illegitimately the throne in Israel is going to stop it. The plan of God, the redemptive plan that is conceived in the mind of the Trinity, eternity past, will not fail no matter who is running things on planet Earth because God providentially rules. And you know, he didn't have to do a miracle to do it. The divine plan is going to succeed regardless of human schemes to undermine it. Now, that's a wonderful reality, isn't it? That's the God we serve. We serve a God who is not constrained by what people do. When God wants to accomplish something in your life, my life, whatever he wants to do, he'll get it done. It doesn't matter who might want to stand in the way. That's what you learn about God. That's why you need to read the word of God. You learn things <laughs> about God. Now, verse 16, Herod's enraged. Thumas is the word in the original there in verse 16. Thumas, he's blown his top. This man was very enraged, the text tells us. He is hot. He said, I can't believe these guys. I told them to come back. They didn't come back. So he's enraged. But the way God thwarts evil schemes of men lead people to acknowledge his rule and praise him. Listen to Psalm 76.10, the A portion. For the wrath of man shall praise you. Uh -huh. Herod was angry. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And God says, come on. Your wrath, because you're going to fail, people will praise me. Praise me. Now, you don't just, verse 15, Joseph remained um, in Egypt, he was there, and he remained there until the death of Herod. He had to remain there because uh, God's going to call him out, uh, Jesus, out of Egypt. Hosea 11, 1 is quoted at the bottom of verse 15. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this prophecy was originally given for the nation of Israel. And at the time Hosea the prophet wrote this, uh, he was looking back when God called uh, his people out of Egyptian bondage. Now, Israel was called God's son in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and verse 23. God indeed was Israel's father and Israel was God's son. And because God had called that nation into existence or had created the nation of Israel. But the ultimate application of this text is to Jesus Christ, God's unique son. Now, think about this for a moment. Do you remember when Jesus, Joseph, and Mary in the caravan went to Jerusalem for the feast? 
And then when the feast was over, his parents went back, going home, and Jesus remained there. They went back to find him, and he was in the temple, dialoguing with the, the biblical scholars. He's 12 years old. In Luke 2.49, Jesus called God his father. This was the first time in scripture that any individual claimed God as his personal father. It wouldn't be the last time Jesus did that either. <laughs> because you read through the Gospels, you see he always says, my father. He even distinguished between himself as a son of God and us who, are, who call God father. Because Jesus is the unique son of God. Because he is the eternal son of God. When he said he, if God is his father, he's saying, I share his essence fully. I share his nature fully. Claimed equality with him. But you say, well, how does um, this text, is quoted by the Matthew, the apostle from the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son, apply to Jesus? Well, listen here. Go with me now for a moment. It's a type. Uh, what is a type? Donald K. Campbell writes, quote, a type is an Old Testament institution, event, person, object, or ceremony which has reality and purpose in biblical history, but which also by divine design foreshadows something yet to be revealed. That's what a type is. It's those things that Dr. Campbell said is true, and that's what typology is. It foreshadows something to come. The foreshadowing or the prefiguring is the thing that is foreshadowed and prefigured. When it comes in history, that thing is called the antitype. Here, this text is a type foreshadowing or prefiguring the coming of Jesus Christ in the future. An Old Testament type, the reason we know it is indeed a type, how can we know that um, Hosea 11.1 is a type, is because the identification of the antitype. Here we understand that it is because Matthew says it's about Christ. Jesus is the antitype. May I further state, God said, called in, in Exodus, he's called Israel his son. He called him from Egyptian bondage. Out of Egypt, I called my son. This prefigured Jesus is being called out of Egypt by God. Verses 19 and 20. Verses, verse 20, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. Where was he when he, uh, Joseph received that instruction? He was in Egypt. He was called out. Now, let me further state it this way. Israel's sojourn, sojourn in Egypt was pictorial prophecy rather than a verbal one, such as in verse 6 of uh, Matthew 2. I got this piece of information from the MacArthur Study Bible. It is true. It's exactly what that's what the scholars all say. It's the truth. 
So this was a fulfillment. This was a type, and it was fulfilled by the antitype. Jesus Christ, God called him out of Egypt. Let me tell you, the fill the scripture had to get to Egypt, right? It was God who arranged everything to get his son to Egypt so he could fill that text so that we would know, okay, Jesus, uh, prophecy number one here fulfilled in this text that we're looking at. Aha, I know he is the one. Providentially protect, protected. That's one prophecy. We need to look at another that affirms that Jesus indeed is uh, the divine Messiah, that he indeed is the king of the Jews. Permitted evil. Permitted evil. We see this in verses 16 through 18. In the A portion, Herod was tricked by the Magi. That's his perspective. But in reality, it was God at work. You see, keep, keep this in mind. Herod had no real clue what was going on. He, he didn't know the power behind everything in history. The, Psalm 2, verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs and scoffs at the Herods of this world. They cannot outwit God. They cannot thwart his purposes. If this had been a chess match, Herod would be in checkmate. You can't beat God at chess. He knows every move you'll make before you think them. If you allow me to use that as an illustration. It's true, isn't it? So what did Herod do? He sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all the vicinity there in verse 16. Now, you need to understand something about the population of Bethlehem at this time. The scholars believe it's about a hundred, I mean, about a thousand people there. And the number of the children slaughtered by Herod's henchmen was approximately 20. Now, of course, one child dying is one too many, right? So children under two years of age, uh, two years of age and young, under, they were slaughtered. And it was because of the time determined by the Magi at the bottom of the verse. is why age two and under. So Jesus was no greater than two years old. Young, perhaps younger than that. Some suggest he was no more than six months old at the time. By his murderous action, Herod took his stand against the Lord and his anointed, Psalm 2. His action, now you need to get this, there, there's a pattern in the scripture. His, his action was in line with the biblical theme of spiritual battle between God and Satan. I'll tell you what Satan knows. Satan knows the prophecy pronounced against him in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He was there. When the Lord God walked into the garden and he pronounced judgment on Adam and Eve and the serpent and Satan, Satan used your head. Genesis 3.15, the head of Satan. He will be defeated by Messiah, the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. Satan heard it. He knew it. He knows what's coming because the Lord God has pronounced it. And I'm going to tell you what Satan's been doing ever since. He has been working overtime. He and his demons trying to overturn the word of God to not be defeated. But he can't overturn the prophecy of the Lord. Now I'm going to tell you something. Those babies in Bethlehem were the first casualties, were casualties, rather, in the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness headed by Satan. 
It's war. It's warfare. Now what I love here in verse 17 is this. You see it's, it says this. Then what has been spoken through the prophet was fulfilled. Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. I need to take a moment to help set something up here. Because I need to give a little information here about how God is at work. And how God controls things. And an assignment of blame and responsibility. It says then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. It's important to understand that neither God nor scripture should be held responsible for Herod's action. Here's the issue, grammar. The text does not say in the original, in verse 17, in order that. There's no purpose clause. It uses the word then. You see, God is not responsible for what Herod did. For Herod's sin, Herod's responsible. God permitted Herod to act according to his own evil nature, his own evil intentions to fulfill Scripture. It's the power of God. He can use men and their evil, their actions, all that they will do to accomplish his perfect will, but he is not responsible for it. Let me give you some additional help theologically. God is the ultimate cause of everything. You following me? Ephesians 1.11. But he is not, and this is a distinction, he is not the chargeable cause of evil. He can't be charged with responsibility for he is not. Men mean an action for evil, but God can take that same evil intention and accomplish good. Let me give an example. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. His brothers uh, sold him into bondage. And what was Joseph saying then? He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Fast forward all the way to uh, the New Testament. And evil men, uh, in their design, they put Jesus on the cross. But guess what? God meant it for good. Then remember the verse that we always, always quote whenever thing, if something goes wrong. Romans eight twenty eight, right? God can take evil. He can take the worst of whatever it is and he can use it for our spiritual good, right? You see, the difference between an evil act is men, they use it for evil intentions. God takes that same thing and turns it around for good. That's what he did. In a situation with this man named Herod. The prophecy was fulfilled to let us know, yes, he's the one. Now, let's, let's talk about this prophecy because you can read it. So how in the world does it have anything to do with Jesus Christ? I'm glad you asked. The word fulfilled means uh, to fill up, to mark this out as completing an Old Testament prediction. Prediction. Now, verse 18 of uh, Matthew 2 it's found in Jeremiah 31, verse 18. The account is of the weeping mothers whose children were taken into exile in Babylon. Remember the Babylon, Babylonian captivity because of their repeated disobedience, disobedience, disobedience. And God said, okay, you're going to go to captivity as punishment because of your sin. And then there's this town, Ramah, there in verse 18. It's five miles north of Jerusalem. 
It was one of the first cities passed by the exiles on their way to Babylon. In fact, Ramah also was where the deportees were a symbol for deportation. Jeremiah 40 verse 1 tells us this. Rachel, weeping for her children. Jacob's wife. She represented Jewish mothers who wept over the tragedy in the days of Jeremiah. And prefigured, here's that word again, prefigured. The mothers of Bethlehem weeping over their children massacred in an attempt to kill the Messiah. That incident back during those days was a prefiguring of what would happen and did happen with the massacre of the babies at Bethlehem. Second, according to the word of God prophecy that Jesus is the divine Messiah. He is the king of the Jews. He is the savior of sinners. Providentially protected, permitted evil. Third thing, verses 19 through 23, provided a particular residence. Well, we see here the end of Herod, but not the Messiah. Isn't that wonderful? Herod died a terrible death, according to the Jewish historian Josephus in his Antiquities. He says this about Herod, that he had ulcerated entrails, putrefied in maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to recovery. The man suffered up to the very moment he died. In fact, the suffering was fitting for such an evil man, and upon his death, he entered eternal torment, as all who reject Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Herod paid the ultimate penalty, and is paying the ultimate penalty for taking a stand against the Lord and his anointed. Herod's demise meant um, the immediate threat to the child Jesus was removed. So God could say, call him back. Remember, we looked at him a moment ago. He said, you, you can go back to Israel. But we know that the hostility toward Jesus was not terminated permanently because as he grew up and went into the ministry. We know, you read the Gospels, there was hostility toward him, right? Even in his hometown of Nazareth, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Because he said, the prophecy of Isaiah 61 was filled in their hearing today. They didn't like that. So, no, no, who are you? They wanted to kill him. There were many times they wanted to kill Jesus, but it wasn't his hour, as John says. Joseph takes the child, verse 21. Those who had died were dead. Not only was it Herod, but others who were associated with him wanted the Messiah dead. So Joseph, verse 21, got up and took the child and his mother and came to the land of Israel. Verse 22, when he got there, he realized Archelaus was reigning over, over Judea. He was, had taken his father's place. And you know the old saying, the apple does not fall far from the tree. And that was certainly the case with Archelaus. He was just like his wicked dad. Now you notice something in the verse. He was afraid to go there. Judea. Let me stop here and put a period there for a moment and say something. Joseph employed common sense. He said, there's danger there. I ain't going there. 
You know, haven't you noticed how sometimes people throw all caution away and talk about God's going to protect me? When God's giving you a brain to say, use your brain. I'm not going to walk out there, cars coming down, Brooks speeding, and say, oh, I'm all right, God's going to protect me. And when y'all had my funeral, the boy should have used his brain. Right? Don't be hyper-spiritual. Employ common sense. Thought I need to tell people that because we have so much craziness going on in our, our country now with all this this religiosity stuff and people saying dumb things and they're dying. I can imagine they get to heaven. God said, "Why did you do that? I gave you sense." Now I don't know what God's going to say to him. You know, I'm just saying that. Joseph employed common sense. And this guy is getting divine, the immediate divine direction, but he recognized, I'm not going there because Archelaus is there. He's just like his daddy, and he, he will try to kill us. Then the Lord came to him in a dream. After being warned by God in a dream, he left the regions of Galilee. Oh, then he got divine direction and knew where to go. This third time God spoke to him in a dream either himself personally or through his agent the angel of the Lord and he went the third prophecy is going to be fulfilled notice verse 23 and came and lived in a city called Nazareth Hmm. a city called Nazareth which was spoken through the prophets he shall be called a Nazarene now I need to tell you something there is no specific Enunciation of a prophecy in the Old Testament that says he shall be called a Nazarene. You'll look in vain for it. It's not there. But the Bible here says, the prophets, plural, said he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, there have been some re- things that adduced to try to explain what it all means, and I don't like I've read them for years, I don't believe them. I think it's simply this. It was a statement made by the prophets, but is unrecorded in the Old Testament. That's what it is. You say, well, why would you say that? Well, I'm going to tell you, in the New Testament, I'm sure you've read in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where it says that the Lord Jesus himself said, quote, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Have you not heard that and read that? May I ask you, where in the Gospels did Jesus ever say that? There's no record of it. But Paul said he said it. Luke recorded it. It's the word of God. So what does that mean? Jesus said it. It just wasn't recorded. Still, so in the Old Testament, the prophet said it, but it wasn't recorded there. Nonetheless, it's true. Why Nazareth? Why that place? Let me tell you why. Because Nazareth at the time of Jesus was a despised place. Remember uh, it was said about Nathaniel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You said, Nazareth, really? Imagine. Can you imagine Jesus grew up there and lived there for 30 years and somebody saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Oh, only the Savior. Only God in human flesh. He, he just lived there for 30 years. Matthew used the unrecorded um, saying of the prophets that Jesus would be called a Nazarene to show that he would be despised as Nazareth was. The Old Testament states that he would be despised. Psalm 22, verse 6. Isaiah 49, verse 7. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised. The loving, holy, pure Savior was despised by sinful men. He grew up there, fulfilled Scripture 3, evidences of who Jesus is. He fits the prophecies. He fulfills them. Now, people can be against him or for him. You can either take refuge in him, you can kiss the sun, that his anger will not be kindled against you, Psalm 2, verse 12. Taking refuge in him. Or you can be like the rulers who want to yank off the course, yank off the restraints. No, I, I don't want him ruling over me. I don't know about you, except I do. I think I do. We want to be ruled by the Lord Jesus, do we not? We understand who he is. We understand that he is the Lord of glory. He is the one about the Old Testament prophets spoke. He is the one, when he was talking to his interlocutors, those people who were against him, he said, the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life, but they are the ones that testify about me. John 5, verse 39. They about him, and he knew it, and he told them. And we know it's true. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Fulfilled prophecy demonstrates that he indeed is who we believe he is. Because we have the word of God to back it up. Amen. Amen. Let's bow and pray. Thank you, our Father. Thank you, our God, for uh, your truth. Uh, We bless your name for uh, the word of God. Because you speak and it happens. In your time and in your way. And there's no one or nothing that can stop you pray that our confidence in the word of God will accelerate as we think on these truths and as we read your word, as we study your word. May we love your word more and love our Christ, the incarnate word more. Love you, our Father, more. As the Holy Spirit, a third person of Trinity, continues to minister to us through the word. We pray for anyone in this room who's unsaved or anyone listening by live stream who's without Christ, that they will surrender their life to him as Lord and Savior in repentance of their sin. We pray you do these things for your glory first and foremost, and then for their eternal welfare and joy. These things we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.